Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, we'll be discussing the role defense and national security issues have played in the 2020 general election cycle. I'm joined by my colleague from CSIS, Sam Brannon, Director of the Risk and Foresight Group and a Senior Fellow in the International Security Program, and by Mackenzie Eglin, a Resident Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Well, we're just about a month out from the presidential election on November 3rd. And so here on Defense 2020, we want to be looking at the campaign trail and into the general election process to see what exactly is being said, what will motivate voters on national security topics. So uh, we have some fresh evidence in the debate. The first debate has now happened between President Trump and Vice President Biden. It was definitely a wild debate day with hard to get many issue areas out of there, but we did hear a few things about defense and security. So I want to start there. And so let me start with Mackenzie and ask you to comment on the president and his reference to rebuilding the military, which he did bring up in this debate. Previously, the way he's talked about this is saying that his administration has invested $2.5 trillion in, quote, all of the greatest equipment in the world. Is that, a, and by the way, that fact-checked is not true, so I won't make McKinsey have to point that out, but is that, in fact, this idea of rebuilding the military, is that, do you think, the centerpiece of his defense argument in this campaign? Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here again. Uh, I think he thinks that's the, the case. So he also touted this in the State of the Union, saying he had completely rebuilt the military. And, uh, you know, I had said at the time, the commander-in-chief might want to check with the troops before he takes a victory lap. I'm not disparaging his efforts. There was a three-year Trump bump for defense where he he spent slightly more than the previous administration had planned. But in the two years since, the Pentagon's lost buying power. So, and what did he do with that money that, you know, but any party would have spent, but he spent slightly more. That money really just went to repairing the foundational readiness challenges that had accumulated since the passage of the Budget Control Act and sequestration in 2013 in particular. There was some increases to research and development, which are important uh, to buy more defense strategy, if if you'll allow me to say that. But he did not rebuild the military. His his Navy plans actually were smaller in some years than President Obama's and how many ships he, he planned to build and actually did. So it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. So Sam, do you think this is a message that resonates? It's certainly a long traditional Republican lines of focusing on the dollars spent on the military. How do you think it plays? Well, we didn't get the Reagan-like buildup that we were promised in the last campaign. So we, we just haven't seen it. So the idea that he's rebuilding the military, too, I think is 
for those who are looking at what the Pentagon is actually buying, you know, the the amount of real plus ups are are pretty minimal. And so at, in the services, you've seen a lot of decisions made. You haven't seen a lot of decisions made, frankly, by his secretaries of defense or by the president himself. So the building and the services have been running themselves during this period. And so I think you can grade them more or less individually on, on what they did or didn't do. So you know, I, I think it's a political talking point. There's not huge evidence there. There is more money that went into the budget. But I think really, we're going to see how much more it bought over the next few years where there are going to be a lot of pressures downward on the budget. And suddenly, we're going to hear the services complaining about all the things they still weren't able to buy. So uh, it's a campaign point. Yeah. So Sam, also, the other thing that was specifically around defense and the military is this uh, debate over what the president's view of senior military or members of the military is. There had been press reporting before the debate um, that the president had referred to members of the military as losers and suckers. He denied that in the debate. He had denied it previously, but it got, it came up on the debate stage. Do you think this matters to voters or even defense and military voters? Well, I guess it matters in the sense that this is a president who is historically unpopular as a Republican with the military. So we see that in the senior in general, you know, in the general and flag officer level, the almost 500 former national security officials, including the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Trump, the former Coast Guard commandant under Trump, who have endorsed Vice President Biden as their preferred candidate, more fit to be commander in chief. We saw a military.com poll that came out in, in early August where the president is about 50% unfavorable with uh, the rank and file military of the thousand active duty they, they interviewed. And then you have all these irritant issues like the pardoning of the Navy SEAL chief, the treatment of the uh, former commanding officer of the Theodore Roosevelt Crozier, you know, even the way that the Syria withdrawal announcement was handled and the resignation of another former four-star general turned Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, what we see in the Woodward book regarding North Korea. I mean, there are lots of issues that have been raised by former military, current military you know, this is echoing inside the building. And so to the degree that that spills over to public perception, I think it colors voters' views on Trump and the military. So he's tried to present himself as very pro-military, but I think as a Republican president, we've never had such an unpopular president with the military. I mean, McKinsey, do you, do you see it that way? Or are you seeing some more support for him inside the military than those sort of top line, particularly at the lower levels, than these defections, so to speak, of senior military might indicate? Well, the president said, you know, himself, I'm not saying the military is in love with me, the soldiers are. And I think that's what he was getting at, right? That, you know, the rank and file, the enlisted, the non-career, really senior military as in officers, you know, that they probably have a different of a opinion of him. It's probably pretty accurate. Uh, you know, that extraordinary apology by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs after the clearing of peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square, you know, that that probably put a bad taste in other officers' mouths. No, no, they're not the chairman, but they certainly could understand the position he was in. Whereas, you know, the, the rank and file, so to speak, the active duty troops, most of which uh, enlisted only serve one or two, two tours and exit the military, they're probably not following all of that as closely. And I think if you were able to separate the numbers, which the Military Times poll does not, uh, you, you might see a more favorable view of him, yes. 
So these, that's kind of it for what came up in the debate. It's not surprising. It's frequently the case that defense and security issues aren't center stage for, for voters nor for the debates, therefore. But there were other issues that came up that I'd like to at least talk about as national security. Certainly COVID was front and center. Election integrity came up. Uh, climate change came up. So McKinsey, maybe just on those general topics, do you think American voters think about these as security issues, particularly COVID, for example? Should they be thinking about it as a security issue? I love your question. I I do think they're related, but it's a complementary spectrum, right? So public safety here at home and national security here at home and abroad. And and in one, you see the military in support of other agencies and organizations and governments. And then the other, they, they're really the pointy end of the spear. They're taking the lead as in foreign, keeping foreign threats, preventing them from reaching our shores, so to speak. But the two, you know, rely on each other. The two outcomes need each other. So, you know, the military needs robust law enforcement and public health, you know, strength here at home and, you know, good stockpiling of, of things that are needed for in the medical stockpile. When that happens, you know, they, they need each other. So I, I do think somewhere in voters' minds, I remember years ago, there was a study that we ran and, you know, voters tend to think in particularly women of uh, safety and concentric circles, right? So it's me and my family. It's my neighborhood and my community, my state, my country kind of just goes out from there. And so in that sense, I do think voters are relate all of these as important as equally important. They don't want to see another 9-11 and they, they don't want to see another lockdown pandemic, you know, everybody caught flat footed uh, response, if, if I can characterize it that way. What I think is really most interesting, Catho, is that if it, whether it was the pandemic or law enforcement and race issues or election integrity that you said, you know, it's funny that there was a military thread that doesn't come up, but that we talk about that runs through all of these, right? You have the military helping with the pandemic. You have uh, politicians calling on the National Guard to help suppress protests that turn into riots. Uh, election integrity, there's a big debate over the role of the military and the chairman saying, ah, we don't have any role in this. So it's just a very interesting time that it didn't come up, but it's coming up in, in Washington. Yeah, Sam, what's your take on the degree to which these issues, voters see them as security issues or should see them as security issues? I think, frankly, Trump is very out of step with how voters are increasingly grasping what, what's national security. I mean, he's very unidimensional. This is a guy who wanted to have tanks parading in the streets. This is kind of how he views military and national security. You know, I think for, for people who are experiencing the impacts of, of COVID at a community level, that feels like national security. It feels like a wartime environment in some ways and the amount of sacrifice that's being asked for, from people. And on issues like election integrity, on some of the more traditional homeland security issues, using the Department of Homeland Security largely as an immigration agency, not focusing on the rise of far-right domestic terrorism, trying to steer the conversation around that. The narrow definition of what is national security, including excluding things like climate change and so forth, I think there are a lot of voters who view it more broadly and frankly are increasingly wondering what it is their tax dollars go to to buy in terms of of national security with that broader definition. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you even reflect back four years uh, in a presidential election cycle, often it's counterterrorism issues or terrorism issues, I should say, that 
are at the top of voters' minds, certainly since the beginning of the 9-11 era. And they're really, yes, there's conversation about domestic terrorism. It's just interesting to me that in, in four short years, if you will, the entire way in which we talk about the security environment in a political sense has changed. What, what do you think Americans right now, if they had to pick, would pick as their number one security concern? Guesses from either of you? I'll just say on the terrorism angle, the theater of terrorism is fading. I mean, we've had an Al-Qaeda-linked attack in the middle of this. We have ISIS-linked activity in Europe and here, and it hardly mentions a headline in the paper. So the spotlight has has moved on, probably for the better, in terms of discouraging further attacks. So I think uh, Americans are reframing what they're what they're thinking security is about. But I don't necessarily think that means they read the national defense strategy and they're thinking about great power competition. I mean, I do think they're thinking about things in their community. I think economic security is is linked to that uh, national security. It's a, it's a broader definition than it was previously. Again, here, Kath, there is a thread that runs through it all. I do think public health security is probably foremost in their minds because what is affecting most people's lives right now, including their economic, their pocketbook, it's, it's based on this pandemic. But what's interesting is that there is a national security element to that public health concern, which is, you know, this pandemic has broadened, I think, the views of Americans that we are in a competition with China. And I think it's hardened those views just universally as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think there's some polling to indicate that there's some hardening of views on China. Again, four years later, if you were to compare those, it's pretty clear that, you know, it's bipartisan concern on China for sure. But the Trump administration, I think, has, has, has been a key part of how that frame has shifted. As for another podcast is what has, <laughs> what has shifted for the better or worse. But, but McKinsey, I want to pick up on your point earlier about the military's rule, this thread running through it. On the military's role in the pandemic, the president on uh, the campaign trail has talked about the military delivering a vaccine when it's available. Presumably, he is talking about DOD's pretty central role in what has been termed Operation Warp Speed. Can you talk a little bit about your understanding of what that role is? And, you know, does it have precedent? Is it appropriate to use the military in that way, in your opinion? I like the framing of your question, Kath, because I am worried about the increasingly knee-jerk instinct by politicians to constantly reach for the military toolkit for all the problems, including here at home first, and like uh, Sam brought up the southern border wall. I mean, they're using defense people and dollars for that, this administration. But in this case, I actually do think it's it's good. You know, as always, when working here at home in uniform, the, the military is supp- in support of state, local, and federal authorities, and other organizations. And in this case, you know, they're really, this is a partnership between the Defense Department and HHS, even though there are many other stakeholders involved, including private companies and other agencies, you know, but the Defense Department has the expertise, you know, they they have the expertise in vaccine development and, and research and science related to this. They have logistics expertise. I mean, really, the Defense Department is like, Amazon plus FedEx plus the United States Postal Service and one organization that you know just ferries goods and people all over the world every single day. So you know they know logistics and they can help with distribution. They shouldn't be helping with the administrating of, of any vaccine, but they can certainly help with logistical support, operational planning and IT. And then finally, 
with contracting, right? So we've seen this actually not just as part of uh, warp speed cath, but throughout the pandemic, the Defense Department is basically loaning out its brain power on contracting because they buy so many goods and services and software and IT every year. They are the experts in the Defense Production Act, which all federal agencies are using right now to speed up, you know, the purchase of uh, PPE and other medical equipment, for example. And so the Defense Department, they understand contracting and they have a lot of expertise. So as long as they're sticking to that kind of work, I think it's it's good. Yeah. How about you, Sam? I mean, I agree with everything that, that Mackenzie said, including the opportunity cost for using the military on this. Honestly, in instead of other areas of the public health response where we still have a long way to go, I'd like to see the military used to ensure everybody has a mask. I'd like to see the military used in helping uh, advise based on what they've learned in their pretty dramatic turnaround in responding to, to COVID. What can they teach schools and you know other large federal agencies and institutions? I hope that information sharing is going on behind the scenes. But I think, you know, is this going to be a decisive the response? It really isn't. It's it's theater because the vaccine rollout is going to be a slow motion process by all public health accounts. So the idea of having the speed and scale of DOD really isn't necessary, particularly because the private sector can do this. I, I mean, it's ultimately not going to be the military sticking a needle in people's arms. It's going to be our sprawling healthcare system. And so just delivering things doesn't speed up the degree to which you actually do the vaccine rollout. We're going to have multiple vaccines. We have so much more testing to do. So warp speed and the and the whole, you know, sort of we're going to do it fast, we're going to do it this year, it just isn't isn't happening. And we have so many other missing elements of the public health response. Well, let's get beyond things that did come up in the debate to the extent that we could hear them to what, if anything, might yet come up in the remaining months. I, I'm not thinking exactly of a October surprise, though we've, we've had one already, one could say, in terms of the president's COVID diagnosis. But I'm thinking just generally the degree to which we should expect defense and security issues to merit attention and discussion either in upcoming debates, if there are any, or on the campaign trail. And I'll throw that out there for either of you. We're both thinking deeply. Yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really scraped. We've been talking. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, I think that's that in that and of itself tells a story, right? If the reality is, you know, we are just in a different period where defense and what we would have thought of as traditional national securities for all the reasons you all have said, are just not going to be central to this remaining election season. I mean, is it fair to say that's what you both think? Maybe I'll explain a little bit why it's that way too, which is one is sort of one is sort of the immediate issue, which is COVID. And there is going to be a continued, you know, assuming we have more presidential debates, there's going to be a line of attack by former Vice President Biden for sure on COVID response. And that will be framed. There'll be a lot of discussion of climate change, I think. Those are the issues that are going to come up more than than any. But I think the other element that's important to note here is that we're in an, an era where a Democratic presidential candidate doesn't need to prove their bona fides on defense policy. And that's a that's a sea change. That's sort of a, you know, post John Kerry, 
you know, maybe a, a Obama innovation in the sense of Iraq war being the central issue that framed that election. And then coming out of that, having earned his, his stripes, so to speak, that this is no longer for, for Joe Biden. He's not, you know, he, he has the national security endorsements again to go, to go back for that. He has the experience. And so that's not a question that traditionally it would be. So maybe that's why it's not being raised in, in that way. And I guess on the on the side of President Trump, I mean, the way that we've seen him raise this is on veterans issues more than more than anything else. So uh, so I guess we can probably expect to see some more focus on on that. Yeah, I kind of welcome it, Kath, because, it, you know, it may, in fact, finally mean that the majority of the military is not in harm's way on any given day right now. And only a handful of troops in you know, places like Afghanistan and Syria and, you know, it's probably good that they aren't front and center all the time. You know, after two decades of this really being a prominent issue, it's kind of nice to give Americans a break from having to think about this and worry about it and just let insiders like us kind of think about it and worry about it. But, you know, and, and to let the troops, frankly, take a break. I wish there hadn't been a pandemic that was the reason primarily, I think, for that. But also to Sam's point about, you know, the, the changing face of terrorism, too, and and the department's shift, you know, to focus on this long-term competition with China. I, I th- actually think it's maybe healthy for our federal republic that, you know, the military is not front and center, so to speak, in, in these debates. Yeah, that's such a great point. Moving beyond the candidates and what they're going to talk about on the trail, we we just had an episode on the platforms, well, one platform, <laughs> uh, which was a Democratic platform that Republicans decided not to put forward a platform, and the conventions. And even there, we didn't see a lot of play on these issues, nor necessarily much difference. I mean, are you two seeing big differences on some of the issues one might normally expect to have occurring such that you'd be thinking ahead to a big shift in approach on defense if you had an administration switch. So here I'm thinking about things like the level of defense spending, the degree to which we're focused on readiness, how we think about the challenge with China, how we think about the wars uh, as McKinsey just referenced them in Afghanistan, presence of our forces in Iraq and Syria. Is this going to be just the same regardless of who wins this election as it, when it comes to defense? I would say there are sharp differences in particularly in the way that multilateralism and alliances are, are going to be viewed by a Trump two administration versus a, a Biden one. You know, we have credible information from multiple sources now that the president continues to think about withdrawal from NATO. There are irritants in the Korean and Japanese relationships that would carry over into a, into a next administration. There's not a lot of progress on free and open Indo-Pacific in terms of making it multilateral. And so those are, those are big differences. The other, the other big difference is on arms control and nuclear nonproliferation. There'd be much more of a commitment there. We're, we're not getting anywhere in the sort of three-party talks that this administration wants to pursue. The Russians just walked away from the table again on, on that one or, or refused to come to it in the first place. Beijing has no interest in that, that format either. And then I think, you know, the issue of diversity and inclusion in, in the military, which is not a, a minor issue from a future recruitment and retention standpoint, when you look at generational attitudes, that's something that's very different under a, a Biden versus Trump administration. I think, you know, on the, the budget cuts issue, the vice president has said he doesn't think budget cuts are inevitable, but we need priorities. So it's obviously a bigger relook 
It's not sort of on on autopilot. It's going to be a hard review, I think. And then, you know, the vice president has a has a record on the defense budget, and it's not cutting the defense budget, at least in his in his eight years with the Obama administration. So I think there's some some honesty to that to that statement. Right. So I, I do think there are there are differences between the two. There are many similarities as well to the two potential administrations. Uh, but the differences are somewhat muted for the reasons we were discussing in the last question, I think, you know, and just the nature of the pandemic is keeping people home and less frequent discussions among the advisors to these gentlemen. Uh, but right. So I, I, I do think the nuclear triad modernization, just by sheer fact of its overwhelming budget size, Kath, in the 2020s, that it's getting close to a half trillion dollars in 10 years or so. Uh, you know, I think it's going to get a relook. I think the, the Trump nuclear posture review you know, uh, under a Biden administration, they'd probably lob off everything that was added that was new in this administration, not which was agreed upon from the Obama administration. Right. And I think a big emphasis on on treaties and agreements, you know, revisiting an, an Iran nuclear you know, or updating, so to speak, open skies, new start, INF, all of those, uh, I think, would be priorities for a Biden administration. And they are not for this administration, if uh, actively not. So it's it's a, there's a lot more sort of foreign policy I think differences, but those certainly trickle down into the defense policy debates, as you know. And I think the shift would continue, you know, in terms of spending priorities. I think they are going to continue the, down the path that Secretary Esper has taken them. You know, he's he's on. He said he's got a budget ready to cut legacy forces for more basically technology, and I think that's the consensus view in defense communities. So while there may be some dollar differences. It, I think the trends and where the dollars are going, no matter how high the tap line is, are going to stay the same. Yeah. And Mackenzie, I just want to ask your view on a Trump uh, second term when it comes to the same nuclear top line challenge, the, the same nuclear budget challenge. Do you think there is a, a relook likely or do you think that that will that they'll continue on the path set out in the NPR? I think there's a relook coming because they don't have a choice. So I, I mentioned earlier that the Defense Department's been losing buying power for the last two years under the Trump administration. So, uh, and so if you're not keeping up with inflation, essentially, and the, the wedge within the defense budget for nuclear spending is basically, you know, it's going up steadily each year of the 2020s, basically through the mid thirties. And, Sure, when you look at it as a fraction of overall defense spending, it's not a lot. But when you look at it as a fraction of, say, the Navy shipbuilding account, it's completely devastating Navy shipbuilding. It's one of the reasons we don't have the 30-year plan and the force structure assessment and all that sort of thing. It's because of this wedge for nuclear spending. It's, you know, I've written about this too, that, you know, we even, yes, even me, I think that there's going to need to be some sort of creative solutions to figuring this out. The fact that all three have aged out, all three legs of the triad have aged out at the same time, and you really can't, you know, extend the service lives uh, your way out of this problem. It's just, it's a, it's just math. It's just simple math. They're going to have to do something. Yeah, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Even McKinsey, I love that. Even me. Um, well, okay. I want to close with um, a, an impossible task to ask each of you, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, Sam, I'm going to start with you. Give me the 30-second best pitch you could make for, if you were Joe Biden, for why people who care about defense issues are going to be interested. And you already can see it coming, McKinsey. I'm going to ask you to do the same for President Trump. So starting with Sam. 
I mean, I'll start by saying if a four-star general who basically got fired on your watch because of a disagreement comes around and endorses you in Stan McChrystal, you must be bringing something to the table that's of interest and, and value. And I think that that is, you know, the track record of the Obama administration, which Vice President Biden played a central role in on national security and foreign policy making, was a, a higher point in American prestige and power in the world than we are at now. And so we have seen a precipitous decline under the Trump presidency. And one of the things that Vice President Biden does is, is number one, he walks in the door ready to be a commander in chief from his previous experience. And number two, he has the trust of allies around the world in a way that he can immediately reach out and, and start to bring those relationships back. That's good. That's a good 30 second pitch. And again, these are not meant to be your personal endorsements, by the way. I'm just asking you to role play these. So McKinsey, what's the best pitch that the Trump campaign can make to a defense voter right now? There's no national security without economic prosperity and vice versa, right? You need safety to grow the economy. We're seeing that even with the pandemic. So as in we're declining in our growth. So, you know, this president cares about both and has identified the, the chief challenge, which is China, and actually has issued, you know, a pretty detailed a step-by-step process across the U.S. government, which has been lacking for a long time now. Perhaps it was because we didn't have the consensus we do now, but it's finally here and somebody had to put out a plan to actually, what does this competition mean and what are we going to do about it? And, you know, what, how are we going to work with academia and private sector and all try and win this competition together? And this White House has a plan. Nice. Very well done for both of you. So again, I don't know if there's a single person who thinks of themselves as a national security voter in the traditional sense, but if they're out there, I think you guys um, think through how to frame this issue. I want to thank Mackenzie Eglin and Sam Brannon, and we'll all be looking forward to see what the rest of this fall brings. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.